0: This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled 2 Kings. And as you open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 4, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. We'll first help you to remember that it was during the days of Ahab and his wife Jezebel when the Lord raised up a prophet named Elijah. And it was during the days of his ministry when the Lord directed Elijah to raise up a replacement. Whose name was Elisha. And then in the second chapter of this book, we learned about the day when Elijah was taken to heaven. He was taken up in a chariot of fire. And it was on that day when the mantle of Elijah uh, was then passed to his protege, Elisha. Well, now here we are in our text tonight, and we find a list of miracles that the Lord performed. Through the prophet Elisha. And in this way, the Lord was further establishing Elisha's status as the prophet of God. And as we consider this list of miracles, which is found here in our text tonight, we're once again reminded of the fact that Elisha was serving an omnipotent or all powerful God who is able to accomplish his will and without fail. What this also means is that those who tonight are serving the God of the Bible were serving the same God. We're serving the, the, the same God that Elisha was serving, and therefore we're serving a God who is able to fulfill every promise that he makes. And with this as our focus, let's turn our attention now to the events that unfold here in Second Kings chapter 4. If you would, let's begin reading at verse 1, where we learn that a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. Here in the opening verse of this chapter, we're introduced to this widowed woman who had been married to one of the students who was attending the school of the prophets. We also learned that her deceased husband had been a servant who was actively supporting the ministry of Elisha, and chances are he was serving Elijah before him so it makes sense here that she's reaching out to Elisha in her time of need. She didn't have the money to pay her bills and her sons were about to be taken away into some sort of indentured servitude. In the light of this, uh, the people of God... I believe uh, should follow in her example. And what I mean to say is that this lady in her time of need looked to the Lord and, and went to uh, the, 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 the ministry of this prophet. She, she sought out the, the leadership of Elisha and sought him for support in her time of need. And, and I believe the people of God here in this day and age, here in the church age, we have to look to our spiritual leaders in, in time of dire need. One reason why? Well, it's because the Lord loves to provide for his people and he does so through the ministries that he's ordered and ordained for his own purposes. With this in mind, I want to consider the way that the Lord used Elisha here to provide this widow and to provide for her and her son. And if you would look with me again at 2 Kings chapter 4, we'll pick up our study at verse 2. Here we learn that Elisha said to her, "'What shall I do for you? "'Tell me, what do you have in the house?' And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. And she came and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your sons live on the rest. Now here in these verses, we learn about this incredible way in which the Lord was providing for this widowed mother. And as we consider this super, supernatural provision here, I, I would also point out that, that there were other widows in the world at this point in time. No doubt that there had to have been you know, several widows in the world at, at, on, that, on that very day. And, and, and you better believe that those widows throughout the world were continuing to struggle in their poverty. And the reason why is was probably due to the fact that they weren't really seeking the Lord for help in the same way that she was. She sought the Lord for help by going to the prophet that she know she knew was serving the lord and 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 you know this widow she was quick to ask Elisha to seek the Lord for his perfect provision at the same time It's also important to note that that you know she already had a connection with elisha and the reason why is because her husband had become a student. Uh, at that school of the prophets, and and therefore he had become himself you know a servant of the Lord in serving elisha. Now, with this example in mind, I just want to encourage you to realize that uh, as as we consider the legacy that he left behind he, he didn 't leave a bunch of money, but he did leave behind a connection that his wife had with the prophet of god and and i 'm here to tell you that a spiritual legacy is always better than a financial inheritance a spiritual legacy is always better than a financial inheritance now don't get me wrong because i'm not suggesting that it has to be either or i'm not suggesting that well it's either going to be this or that you know christian listen if you can leave your family with a spiritual legacy and a financial inheritance well that's awesome if you're able to do both then praise the lord but if it's going to be one or the other I'm here to tell you that a spiritual inheritance will be uh, or a spiritual legacy will be better than a financial inheritance. And it's sad to say that there are many fathers in the church today who who fail to leave behind a spiritual legacy. And the reason why is because they're more invested in leaving behind a financial inheritance. They've placed a greater premium on leaving money to their family than an example of what it means to be a godly man. As a result, they fail to become the servants of the Lord. And the reason why is because they're way too busy working overtime hours so that they might make more money and leave uh, more money to their, their children. And listen, if this sounds like something you struggle with, then I want to encourage you to consider something that Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 23. It's there where he declares, Do not overwork to be rich, because if your own understanding cease, will you set your eyes on that which is not For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Christian, listen, finances are fleeting. Investments fail. And the inheritance that we set out to leave behind for our family can easily disappear. You know, I mean... uh, just just think back to times when you know the the, the stock market crashes and, and and all of a sudden our stocks and our bonds are worthless and the 401k is no longer worth what you thought it was worth. And I mean I've seen people just lose lots and lots of money because they had it invested and they thought it was always gonna be there, and next thing you know, it's gone. And that's everything that they were working for. Finances are fleeting. They they make wings and fly away right before our very eyes. Therefore, every believer will do better to make sure that we've actually uh, created a spiritual legacy. We've led our family by example in in, in being, you know, husbands, the the man, or wives, the, the woman of the house who is seeking the Lord first so that our family knows what it looks like to seek the Lord. The Lord is the one who can provide us with perfect provision even in times of drought even when there is no money the lord here is providing for this widow and her sons by giving them oil from one jar of oil and the only limit to the amount of oil that 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 she had was just based on the limit of containers that she could find the lord knows how to provide for his people The Lord knows how to provide for for our loved ones long after we're gone. And you can be thinking, well, you know, I've got to leave them something so that they have something when I'm gone. And it's like, look, the best thing that you can leave them with is a spiritual legacy that helps them to understand that it's better to look to the Lord than to worldly wealth. Therefore, let's make sure that we're leading our family properly, much like the man who spent his life serving the Lord by supporting Elisha so that his wife after he was gone, knew to look to Elisha, who could look to the Lord on her behalf. And listen, the Lord is not only able to provide for his people in supernatural ways, but he's also able to bless us in ways that we can't even imagine. And with this in mind, let's pick up our study of Second Kings 4. If you would, uh, let's begin reading there at verse 8, where we learn that it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. She said to her husband, "'Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God "'who passes by us regularly. "'Please let us make a small upper room on the wall "'and let us put a bed for him there "'and a table and a chair and a lampstand "'so it will be whenever he comes to us "'he can turn in there.'" Now here in these verses, we find Elisha, he's traveling through the tribal land that belonged to, the, to Israel's son Issachar. And it was there in Issachar where we find the city of Shunem. And in the city of Shunem, it was a wealthy woman, a Shunamite, who was noticing Elisha as he would pass by. And she began to realize that this was a man of God. And therefore, she asked her husband if they could bless him as a man of God. They they wanted to bless him with food and and even a place to stay. And in this way, we can see how this lady, uh, she was using her wealth to support the ministry of Elisha by providing him with this free room and board. She wanted to use the wealth that the Lord had provided her and her husband to bless the man of God. And as a result, the Lord used Elisha to provide her with something that she couldn't purchase with her money. As a matter of fact, look with me here beginning at verse 11 Here we learn that it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there Then he said to gehazi his servant call the shunammite woman When he had called her she stood before him and he said to him Say now to her. Look you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. So he said, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. Now here in these verses we find the Lord He's using Elisha to bless this wealthy woman with this promised son. This is nothing that she could have purchased with you know, her own money. She couldn't have, uh, have gone and, and you know, purchased artificial insemination. She, could, she couldn't have uh, you know, used her wealth to, to make this happen, and yet the Lord was able to make it happen. And as we consider the way that the Lord blessed her in this way, I would point out that the the world was actually filled with women who were barren on that very day. There were other barren women in the world at this point in time, and yet it's the Shunammite woman who was receiving this blessing from the Lord. And the reason why is due to the fact that she was the one who wanted to bless the Lord. She wanted to bless the Lord by financially supporting his servant, Elisha. And the Lord said, oh, you want to bless me, huh? I'm going to bless you. This reminds me of something that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11. There he asks, who has first given to God and it shall be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. More simply put, Paul was basically saying God is a debtor to no man. God is a debtor to no man, and therefore, those who set out to bless the Lord will only discover that it's impossible to out-bless God. It's impossible to out-give God. I, I like the way that Paul put it in Hebrews chapter 7, where he declares, Beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better, or, or the, the, the one with less is always going to be blessed by the one with more. Listen, in, in our relationship with God, it's important to remember that we're the lesser. He's the greater. We have a little in what we have, we've received from him. And, and so the believer who says, well, I'm going to take what little he's given me. I'm going to use it to bless him back. Then he goes, well, you're not going to out bless me. Therefore, those who use their wealth to bless the Lord, they eventually realize that Solomon was right when he declares in Proverbs chapter three, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase so, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. You can't outgive God. I would invite you to try. Prove me wrong. But I'm here to tell you you'll never outbless the Lord. Those who have a heart to bless the Lord with our worldly wealth, even with our time and, and, and our talents, we're only going to discover that every good gift and every perfect gift is, is actually from above, and it, and it comes down from the Father of lights who is able to provide us with everything that we need, and not only what we need, but he goes above and beyond. And listen, this perfect provision of the Lord is not only financial, it's not only familial, but it's also a provision of peace which actually fills our hearts in times of tragedy. And with this as our focus, let's turn our attention back to Second Kings chapter 4. If you would, let's pick up our study there at verse 18. Here we learn that the child grew and it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him and went out. And she called to her husband and said, "'Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys "'that I may run to the man of God and come back.' So he said, "'Why are you going to him today? "'It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath.' And she said, "'It is well.'" Now, as we consider the response of this troubled mother, we must not fail to recognize the calm sense of peace that she possessed here. Without debate, she was moving with purpose. She was dedicated to to getting the donkey that she needed and the servant that she needed to go and find the man of God. She was going to go seek help from Elisha. And yet at the same time here, she's demonstrating the perfect peace of God by simply responding, it is well. It is well. I like the way that the scholars who give us the New Living Translation rendered the end of verse 23. They put it like this, that she said, it will be all right. It's not that it was well. But rather, it was going to be all right. And that's what she knew. But, and and this, this, this lady had great faith, which provided her with peace of mind. And her faith helped her to, to just believe that the Lord was going to work this out according to his perfect will. And in order to further grasp this peace, which passes our understanding, uh, let's consider the way that, you know, this, this sad mother sought help from the Lord. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 24, here we learn that she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. Here again we find this mother, she's responding with faith by insisting everything is going to be all right everything is going to be all right and as we consider the faith that was filling her heart with this sort of peace that that would lead her to think that everything was going to be all right it's important to note that she wasn't proclaiming some sort of positive confession you know she wasn't like thinking well my words are containers of faith and i just have to say the right words and magic will happen you know that's that's not what's happening here she's not attempting to employ oprah's secret here right Instead, she simply had the faith to believe that God is, in fact, able to work all things, whatever they are, together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. She believed that everything was going to be all right, even if her son remained dead. She knew that God was in control. And with that being the case, it is well. This is the same sort of faith that led Horatio Spafford to write the lyrics of the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Now, Spafford was a lawyer who increased his worldly wealth through real estate investments along Lake Michigan's shoreline, and it's sad to say that he ended up losing everything overnight due to the great Chicago fire of 1871. Lost all of his wealth. And he not only lost all of his wealth, but it was two years later when his children died, when their ship sank into the Atlantic Ocean. Spafford was then moved by the Spirit of God to proclaim the peace that he was feeling throughout all of this. He wanted to write down this peace that he was experiencing. And so he began his famous hymn, It Is Well, with these words. He says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught uh, taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul that's amazing faith it's amazing faith for this man who lost all of his wealth he lost his kids and and he turns and begins to praise god by declaring it as well it's gonna be all right because god is in control Without debate, we live in a fallen world, and as a result, we're all going to suffer many heartaches. And yet those who walk by faith with the Lord will receive that peace that passes all understanding. And the reason why is because the Holy Spirit is here to comfort us by by helping us to remember that we serve this all-powerful God who's able to work all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's also important to remember that we serve a God who has power not only over sin but also over death itself as a matter of fact look with me again here at second kings chapter four i want to pick up our study at verse 27 here we read now when she came to the man of god at the hill she caught him by the feet but gehazi came near to push her away but the man of god said let her alone for her soul is in deep distress and the lord has hidden it from me and has not told me so she said did i ask a son for my lord Did I ask a a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing, therefore he went back to meet him and told him, saying, "The child has not wakened." So in other words, placing a stick on the kid's face didn't work. And so Elisha then decided to go and and see for himself. And in verse 32, we find Elisha coming into the house. There was the child lying lying uh, dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. So he called her. And when he had come in to him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. In these verses, we find the Lord empowering the prophet Elisha to restore the life of the young boy who had died. It's incredible. As we can, Consider this incredible miracle here. I have no doubt that most of us here tonight, we, we've we all struggled with the death of a loved one, I'm certain. If so, then, then you've probably wondered why the Lord withholds his healing power. You know, we find the Lord using healing power tonight. And we can look at this and wonder, well, why didn't the Lord heal my loved one in the same sort of way i was 12 years old when i found out that my mother was dying of cancer and and seeing how she was a believer who you know had bought into the whole word word of faith movement well I, i watched as she was surrounded by all these christians who were speaking words of faith over her claiming her healing as they prayed for her And, you know, I was 12 years old. I didn't know better. I thought, okay, this is going to work. You know, they've told me that she's healed, and in the name of Jesus, she's healed. Before I turned 13, she died. She died. And 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 in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I I thought this was going to work. I thought they, you know, said the magic words. They said, in the name of Jesus, and bada boom, bada bing, it's supposed to work. It didn't work. And as a result, I began to question the God that she had worshipped. I began to struggle with this idea of this good and loving God who would allow one of his servants to die in such a horrible way. It's possible that you can relate with this. It's possible that you've watched somebody die and and that you struggled after praying and praying for healing and, and God didn't heal, and now you're wondering, well, why would God allow this to happen? If this is something that you struggle with, it'll help you to realize that the Lord has vowed to heal every believer, but it's through the promise of the resurrection. It's by the stripes of Jesus that we are healed, but that's not a healing that necessarily takes place in this world. It could, if that's in line with his will. But the ultimate healing that the Lord has for us is through the resurrection. And with this as our focus, hold your place here in the book of Second uh, of Kings. I'd like you to turn with me to First Corinthians chapter 15. And as you make your way to the 15th chapter of First Corinthians, I want to take a moment to remind you that death became an issue for every living creature on the day when Adam and Eve sinned against God. In other words, original sin resulted in the curse that has caused the entire creation to become now corrupt. And with that being the case, the Lord must allow every person to die. Uh, otherwise, you know, we'll be in an eternal state of fallenness. We'll, we'll suffer from the curse uh, for the rest of eternity. And, and the Lord wouldn't be a good God to allow that to happen. The Lord allows every person to die so that he can provide those who trust in Jesus with an incorruptible body. And this happens through the resurrection. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians 15. I I want to jump down to the end of this chapter. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 51. Here Paul declares, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory o death where is your sting o hades where is your victory the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ therefore my beloved brethren Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In these verses, we find Paul pointing to the day when every believer will receive a brand new body. And unlike the fallen body that we're stuck in right now, we're going to eventually receive this spiritual body, which is free from the corruption which was caused by the fall so if you think the miracle of Elisha was incredible, it was. But I'd point out that was only a resuscitation. It was miraculous. The child had died. But that wasn't a resurrection. It was just a resuscitation. And if you think that's incredible, just wait until the resurrection. Because it's at that point in time when the Lord Jesus will use his supernatural power to resurrect the bodies of those who have placed their faith in him that's going to be incredible how do i know this is going to happen well the proof is found in the fact that the lord jesus himself has risen from the grave just like he promised well how do i know that well, I would just appeal to the eyewitnesses from the first century who confirmed this fact and have confirmed it many times over. As a matter of fact, let's consider something that Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I, I would ask you to back up to the beginning of this chapter. I want to back up to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. It's there beginning at verse 1, where Paul presents us with the eyewitness evidence, which actually proves the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. If you would uh, look with me at, at beginning at verse 1, where Paul declares, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also Received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, uh, here in the beginning of this chapter, which is all about the resurrection, We find uh, Paul here, he first presents us with a list of those who actually spent time with the Lord Jesus after his death, after his burial, and after his physical resurrection. There were more than 500 brethren who saw the Lord Jesus Christ after he had bled out there on the cross. Therefore, we have good evidence to believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real, that it actually happened. We know that this account was written in the first century and therefore we know that the critics uh, had every opportunity to disprove this letter written by Paul and they didn't. Therefore, there should be no doubt in our minds that the Lord Jesus has, in fact, risen from the grave. And with that being the case, we can also rejoice in knowing that those who trust in him will also be raised incorruptible. This was precisely the point that Jesus was making in John chapter 14, where he declares, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Jesus goes on to tell them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord Jesus has promised to resurrect the bodies of those who trust in him. And it's at that point in time when we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, but this is our focus. I'd like you to make your way back with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. Here we find the Lord using Elisha to perform uh, what I consider to be a culinary miracle. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 38, here we learn that Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now, the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it a lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. Then they served it to, to the men to eat. And now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, man of God, there is death in the pot and they could not eat it. So he said, well, then bring some flour. And he put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Here in these verses, we find a group of students from the school of the prophets, which was there in Gilgal. They're preparing some dinner. Unfortunately for them, this was during a time of famine, which caused them to go out and find some Wild gourds, which they were unfamiliar with. And after tasting the dish, one of them declared, Gordy, gordy, this is bad. That's probably one of the worst jokes I've ever told right there. I like the way that the scholars who gave us the New Living Translation render verse 41, they put it like this. Some of the stew was served to the men, but after they had eaten a bite or two, they cried out, Man of God, there's poison in this stew. So they would not eat it. Based on this, it would appear that the wild gourds that they found, uh, they were probably toxic. Uh, there is a wild gourd, uh, which is actually known as a stinky gourd. And uh, and yeah, it stinks. And, uh, and it's toxic. It can be poisonous. And so chances are they tasted it and probably realized pretty quickly that it was poisonous food. Rather than throwing it out because this was a time of famine... The Lord used Elisha to fix this culinary mistake by just throwing some flour into the stew. And, you know, flour is not going to get rid of poison. And yet, that's exactly how the Lord did it. Now, it's interesting because the Lord could have just supernaturally provided them with all the food they needed. And yet again, the Lord is using this miracle to further show that Elisha is the prophet of God. And. And not only that, but we see a little bit of a reverse of the curse, so to speak, because poisonous plants, thorns, and briars, and these sorts of things came up from the curse. And so we see how the Lord has the miraculous power to reverse the curse, and we see that example here uh, in this miracle. And not only was Elisha empowered to fix that bowl of toxic stew, but the Lord also used him to multiply loaves of bread. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me beginning at verse 42... Here we learn that a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what? Shall I set this before 100 men? And he said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. The Lord promised it through Elisha, and he fulfilled the promise. And as we consider this gift of bread from this uh, city which was in Ephraim, uh, you know, the servant of Elisha knew right off that 20 loaves and this little sack of grain, uh, well, it, it was a great deal of food during a famine, and yet... He also knew that it wasn't enough food for all the men who were there. There were at least 100 men there. Each man could have eaten a loaf by himself. I'm certain of it. And yet Elisha had the faith to say, just serve the food and it's going to last and there's going to be leftovers. And that's exactly what happened according to the word of the Lord. I can't help but to remember the times that, Lee, that, that, that Jesus... Has multiplied bread for the masses. He did this on a few occasions. As a matter of fact, it's in Matthew chapter 14 where we find the Lord Jesus. He feeds 5,000 men, and, and we don't know how many women and children were there as well, but he fed this multitude just with five loaves and two fish. It was a miracle. In Matthew 15, we find the Lord Jesus feeding 4,000 men and and then a countless number of of women and children. Uh, He took seven loaves of bread and a few small fish and and fed the multitudes in this way. Again, another miracle. And while these miracles are incredible, I'm actually more blown away by uh, the, the dishes which will eventually be served at what we know to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, in order to explain what I'm talking about, I'd like you to turn in your Bible now to Revelation chapter 19. And as you make your way to the 19th chapter of Revelation, I just want to remind you that, you know, the the universal church, uh, which consists of every believer on the planet today, and and I would take it out further than that and just say that the universal church includes every believer who has ever or ever will exist, you know, every born-again believer during the church age who has ever walked the face of the earth or will uh, this is the spiritual bride of Christ. How many people is this? I have no idea, but I'm going to guess it's it's more than five thousand. And according to John, there's coming a day when the resurrection of all of these saints will be followed by this joyous occasion, which John refers to here as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Which tells me there's food in heaven, and, and I can't wait. But this is our focus. Look with me there at Revelation chapter 19. We'll begin reading at verse 6. Here John declares, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Here in these verses, we find the Lord providing a supernatural supper for every believer who has ever lived. It's going to be a massive multitude of people who will all be seated at beautiful tables, will all be dressed in white linen garments. And you better believe there's going to be a ton of food there. What kind of food? I have no idea. Is it going to be vegetarian? I can't tell you. Is there going to be pork? I I pray that there will be, you know I've actually been eating, uh, for for years I've been eating kosher hot dogs made of beef. There's a company called Hebrew National. And they make delicious beef hot dogs, which have been blessed by some rabbi somewhere. And I feel bad because I actually wrap these hot dogs in bacon. Which completely destroys the the kosherness of it, but oh, they're good. Bacon-wrapped Hebrew national hot dogs. Just, you know, if you have the liberty, go for it. It's pretty good. Maybe that will be on the menu when we get to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm going to guess that whatever it is, it's going to be perfect. It's going to be delicious. And how do I know that? Well, the Lord can use Elisha to take poisonous gourds and turn it into delicious stew. And the Lord can take loaves of bread and multiply it for as many people as he wants. And when we get to heaven, we're going to sit at a huge table and we're going to enjoy each other's fellowship and we're going to worship our Savior as we enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. With that being the case, I just want to close our study tonight by encouraging you. If you're a Christian, then let's rejoice. Let's rejoice in knowing that We serve a Savior who has made some incredible promises. But listen, I'm sure we all know people who have made incredible promises and failed to fulfill them. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is an incredible Savior who not only makes great promises to us, but he fulfills them. He has the power to fulfill them. And and so, therefore, when we get to heaven, we will sing hallelujah for the Lord God, omnipotent, all-powerful reigns. And we'll see how powerful he is as he feeds the entire church with incredible food. And so let's rejoice tonight, regardless of where we are. You know, you might be in the middle of a tragedy. You might be on top of the world, regardless of what's happening in your life right now. I just encourage you to have an eternal perspective, looking forward to that day when we will exist in Bodies that will never be corrupted again. Incorruptible bodies. In the presence of our Savior, enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. We have a Savior who has made this promise to us. He's gone to prepare a place for us and promised that he's going to receive us to himself. That's what we have to look forward to. And that's what we should be focusing on. We have a Savior who makes incredible promises we have a Savior who's able to keep all of his promises according to the word of the Lord. Let's pray.